Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. So why don't you repeat what you just told me? <laughs> I've already said it. I look like a dork in these headphones. I need you to to match me so that we're we're co-dorks. Yeah. Well, I've (laughs) got to figure out when the next time we're together, you'll show me what you're doing to figure it out. Oh, I can't wait. When is that? Uh, You know what? I don't know. December, maybe. Okay. I'll be here in December. Um, I want to thank um, Lindsay Milas. I saw her and her hair down and her headphones on. And so I was like, oh, that's how you do it. So thank you for um, giving me a cute fashion tip, Lindsay, because she's always, she's always cute. I don't know how she manages it, but she does. So good afternoon to you. Uh, because <laughs> I'm a girl, do you? <laughs> oh, I, unless I know this. I know, but you don't look like a dork. You never will look like a dork, but, uh, <laughs> but we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. So that's just this the way it true. works. This is true. Okay. The other, the other funny thing I wanted to tell you is I, I broke a coffee mug. Those of you who listen know I love coffee and I always have a cup of coffee as we're recording. So I went and got a new coffee cup yesterday and I realized I'm showing Stu, but you guys won't know I'm a left-hander. So when I hold my coffee cup with my left hand, Stu, you see, there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing on it. And I was like, Oh my God, I bought a right-handed coffee cup. But when I do it on the podcast, what do you see? Uh, I don't know what that is, but well, it's anyways, it's a beautiful little little decor on the other side. And I was like, oh, so it's it's my podcast mug. Yeah. So you do you realize it. how much left-handed stuff there is? Like how much is actually designed for right-handed people? You know, it's or something I've not really spent a lot of time thinking about, actually, because well, I'm right-handed. Yeah, a lot of stuff. We just have to adapt, but that's okay. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a right-handed i'm a right-handed supremacist that's what you i am. totally are <laughs> okay you so totally are. so i want to say good afternoon to you good morning where you are but it's i'm in texas i'm in lubbock texas and on my way to austin after a wonderful breach seminar in fort collins colorado i want to thank althea for opening up her beautiful birth center to me and the hospitality there we had about 21 people alive and about six or seven people i think online so Again, that's a really good turnout for what I want. I mean, ultimately, people think, well, only 20 people. That's more than I'd like to have at a hands-on seminar. So it was uh, another great where The midwives just are so enthusiastic. Once I start doing the uh, hands-on training, after I set one up and I set the other one up, um, I sort of just, I I push for a while, but then I let them take over because there's so much they can learn just from being the pusher as well as the receiver. Mm -hmm. Um. Of those. So yeah. I want to, again, I, I think that I'm on my way to Austin and then I'll be up in Dallas. By the time this podcast comes out, I'll probably be done with Dallas already. I want to just briefly say that I want to remind everybody, get out and vote. Do not vote for the status quo, um, if yeah. you, unless you like it, unless you like everything that's been going on in the country right now. You know, think about it carefully. I'm not telling you who to vote for. You probably know who I'm telling you not to vote for, but that's up to you. So, um, but get out and vote. That's really important. I want to tell everyone how worthless my cat is. Um, (laughs) Very important to me that she likes, she's great for cuddling. She's horrible for flies. Mm -hmm. She just sits there and looks at them. 
as they buzz around. Your head's moving really fast and looking around at them, but she never goes and tries to eat them or swipe them. And it's just like, what is wrong with you? So did you know that I, uh, one of my clients had a place that was out in kind of the middle of nowhere in Carpinteria and they always had their doors open. And so there were always flies around. Um, and so the dad had this, um, it's like a, it looks kind of like a, um, Nerf gun, but it shoots salt. Have you seen this? No. So you shoot salt at the flies, Stu. I think you might have a good time with that. <laughs> I might buy you one for Christmas. Well, don't you get salt all over your RV then? I mean, I think they didn't care as much. <laughs> yeah. If it's fun, maybe it's worth the mess. Well, you know what? If it's salty as fuck, then it's probably something <laughs> that fits with our with our podcast, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, on a serious note, I want to give a tribute to uh, the passage of Cynthia Calais. I don't know if people know who she is. She was a midwife extraordinaire from Wisconsin. Uh, I know for a fact that she did over 500 breaches. I don't know if she ever kept track, maybe even more. I know Rixa was trying to get some cataloging of her, of her deliveries. I don't know if that ever got done, but she passed away this past week. And she hosted a conference that I went to where I was honored to be involved in. It was called Life in the Microbiome. And mm -hmm. I gave a talk about birth in, in that setting, obviously, I, it's my specialty. <laughs> but um, she sponsored that and she's affected the lives of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. And it's sad when we lose somebody with that kind of skill and wisdom from our ranks. Yes. Thank you, Stu. Okay. Um, would you like to talk about my birth? Yeah. And before I do that, I want to give people a heads up what we're going to try to get to today, assuming we do, we're going to oh, talk yeah. a little bit about amniotic fluid and possibly, no. possibly a, pre, a premature rupture of membranes at term. So that's, no, we're going to talk about all things amniotic fluid. Okay. All things amniotic fluid. Yeah. All right. All Bliss, Bliss will guide us and I'll just okay. regurgitate. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Let's hear so about your, let's hear about your birth. I wanted to actually talk it through with you. Okay. Yeah. So I would like to ask you a question because this has now happened to me twice. And I, you know, I really want to I always go back when things don't go perfectly you know from my from my type a um perfectionist virgo brain i always i always go back and go what could i have done better you know did i step in too soon uh you know was i sensitive with what i was talking about like i just really like reevaluate how i can improve um and so i'm just wondering what you would have done beautiful delivery in the bathroom um she was you know went to sit down on the toilet after the baby was born i said you know actually i would love to get you on the bed um because it's hard for me to assess blood loss on the toilet um this mom had been uh, anemic throughout her pregnancy and not very good about changing her diet because of some social history stuff and um so it was i had to rely only on supplementation to like get her numbers up um, and I already knew that she didn't have a lot in the reserves, you know, cause she was on the very low end of what we would want to see with her CBC. So get her on the bed. And she says, um, so I'm leaking. And I knew that it was blood and I could see in the chucks pad that it was blood. Okay. So placenta still in, get her on the bed. Um, and she's bleeding pretty, pretty good. I asked my assistant to, um, 
drop, hit. I think when we were walking back, actually, I had an instinct and I said, drop, hit. And so we gave her uh, 10 units of IM in the thigh. And then she said, do you want to do 20? And I looked and it seemed like it was okay, waiting for the placenta to come. And then another huge gush. And so I said, yeah, let's give her another 10 units. Um, and then I was like, okay, cords flaccid, mom's missing. The placenta might be just sitting right there. So I was, you know, asking her to kind of, if she was having a contraction to push, placenta wasn't coming, placenta wasn't coming. I told her I was going to reach up inside just to see if it was right there. It wasn't right there, still bleeding. So what would you do to manage that? Well, it sounds like you're having more than 400 cc's blood loss. That's just my my take on it. I, I don't know if that's the mm -hmm. case, but I, I hate bleeding afterwards. So I tend to be more aggressive than you guys do. And I would go ahead probably and make sure her fundus was firm. And I would have probably done a bimanual exam on her as you did. And you didn't find the placenta there. But if she's if blood is running down and running out around your arm and down the leg and stuff like that, then I, I don't think that while the placenta is still in, I would have given her mesoprostol. I would have probably gone up and see right. where the placenta is. Right. And if it's if it's still attached, I mean, would I have done a manual uh, removal? Yeah, if I was worried about her having the bleeding. But you're, again, you're only saying she passed about 400 at that time. But I, I think maybe it was more. Just by that's that's not normal. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. So something but, going on. Yeah. Right. But I'm just saying that 400 doesn't seem terribly. Although, again, you said she's low to start with, and and, and placenta's not even out yet. So. Right. Yeah, at that point, you're right. It is not normal. And I would have gone up and felt it. And, you know, I'm fairly aggressive about those sorts of things. But in high, you know, I can't say what I would have done. I didn't know the woman. I didn't know, you know, clinically. So I, I, I really, I'm only speculating. I would never second guess your, your. No, I'm just, what else would be going on that she would be bleeding that much unless there's a partial separation? Correct. Yeah, there's probably, oh probably God, unless, yeah, tear. I mean, that's yeah, a, a cervical laceration or something, but that's so freaking rare that you wouldn't Especially probably. Especially when a normal, normal delivery, no, no coach pushing or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I you know, okay. again, I, I would probably have gone, like you said, I mean, if you were, you're obviously, you're uncomfortable with it, Bliss, so, and, and you have experience. So when you're uncomfortable with it, something isn't right. So you want to fix, you want to try to do what you can to, to solve the problem as quick as possible. Yeah. I mean, it was either that or, or, or going in, calling, calling 911 right then. But I figured, you yeah, know, you if we could call, get the placenta you, out, it probably would be no problem. Like it would just be solved. So anyways, that's what I did. I went in uh, and I got the placenta out. Um, obviously it's very intense for a mom to have that experience. And it's always something that I, I want to avoid if, if at all possible. Um, and then you have to go in a second time to make sure that you got everything the first time. So, um, so did that and then, uh, you know, let her know that everything looked good. Um, we weren't really bleeding anymore. And, um, I felt really comfortable about that. Uh, fed her, you know, helped her feel better. Um, went into the other room to do an Elden card because she was RH negative. So, you know, I felt like everything was stable. We had time to do that. So I went to go handle that and, you know, look at the placenta and like do that exam. And they came in and said she was getting shocky. So I went back in, managed the shock, 
assistant started to get the um, IV materials together, I knew that this woman had uh, crappy veins. We had sent her into the lab because she had just said, you know, there's no way. I was really hoping not to have to give her an IV in labor. And here we are. And so, uh, you know, went for it, did the very best to get it in, couldn't get it in. Um, and then she started bleeding again and um, was feeling shocky. And we, um, my assistant looked at me and said, I think we should call it. And at this point we must've had, we never got to do a good EBL because we ended up transporting. Um, but I would, I said between a thousand and 1200 and she said closer to 1500 in her assessment. So, um, it was a good call. And, you know, of course I was starting to like think, did I go too soon? Because by the time the paramedics got there, she said she was feeling better, you know, all of this, but, um, I knew she needed an IV and she probably needed a transfusion because of how she, you know, what she was exhibiting. We always say that like people can handle blood loss, but you have to look at what's happening inside of mom. And she was definitely uh, very pale, uh, tingly ringing in her ears, you know, shocky. Um, and so we did transport and the doctor, you know, ended up saying that they were going to take her back. Her, um, heart rate was 152 when they took her back. Um, and it took them a long time to get an IV in her and they had to use an ultrasound machine in order to do that. So that helped me feel a little bit better that like even the professionals with all their tools were having a hard time too. And then they ended up, um, they came out later and told us, you know, they said it was a potential that if they couldn't stop the bleeding or if it was an accreta or something like that, they would have to do a hysterectomy. So of course that was scary to hear. Wow. Um, and, uh, they ended up inserting a balloon. What did you call it? Bakri. 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 B-A-K-R-I. Bakri. Uh -huh. balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Which basically gets inflated with saline and then puts pressure on the uterus, um, so that it can, you know, do that work of starting to it just tamponades the bleeding so that you know, it can controls it for temporarily. Obviously, the uterus can't really contract down completely within you got a 800 cc balloon. Yeah. Um, uh, in the uterus, I, I I've always carried one. I've carried it in my birth suitcase for yeah. my whole entire birth. You know, it probably has expired, um, and I've never used it. But thank God. But yeah, it is a tool that uh, you can use for that scenario if if you try and yeah they. They said that she just stayed boggy and wouldn't, it wouldn't firm up. And then that started to make sense with what I was seeing at home. Um, so I don't know why some women just don't, their bodies just don't do that. Um, but that was yesterday's transport. Yeah. And it was my first, first time transporting here in Santa Barbara. So that was a little like, okay, how am I going to be received? And you know, all of that. And then, um, and then it was my first time being at the hospital since sky passed. So that at any you know, hospital, right? Any hospital, you know, so that smell, that hospital smell when you walk in, it was very much like, okay, here we go. I knew it was going to happen. Eventually I was going to have to transport with a client at some point, you know, it's part of the work that I do, but yeah, that was yesterday. How's she doing? Mom? Yeah. Yeah. She's, I'm going to go <laughs> <laughs> baby. The baby's um, cord never got cl clipped, trimmed. So we put a clamp on it, but it never got trimmed. So the baby has this big long cord and they won't do anything at the hospital because the baby didn't get checked in. So anyways, I'm going to visit them today. She said she was, she got some rest and she's um, feeling better. So um, yeah, I'm going to go visit them in a little do while. You know, do you know if the balloon is still in? Yes. 
Okay. It was as of this morning, they were going to leave it in for 24 hours, take half of it out, see how she did and hope that um, the uterus is functioning properly because if they, if it won't stop bleeding, that was, they basically said the same thing that she would need a hysterectomy. So I, given what I felt and what I saw with the placenta, I, I just, it wasn't an accreta, you yeah. know what I mean? You just know. And so, um, so with an accreta, it's going to come out in shredded pieces and, yeah. and it, you know, I, I, she's probably NPO, uh, because they're not sure they're going to need to do surgery on her. So they're probably not feeding her, but wouldn't it be great to give her some ice cream? <laughs> <laughs> see if that helps her ears contract you know who knows definitely well we did that in labor by the way yeah sometimes um, you use a lot of blood you become moment. calcium deficient you could also have mm -hmm. uh, um, washed out some of your clotting factors i'm not sure that that's preventing the uterus from contracting but certainly a low calcium would do that yeah so anyways i, I don't know why people yeah share. i don't know why you're welcome i don't know why people some people that happens to i, I just don't don't yeah. understand you know, yeah. the great mystery, but we sure wish that we knew what to do or how to prevent it. Um, well, but that's why collaboration is mm -hmm. so important with the hospital. Very important. Right. So, you know, hopefully it went smoothly and hopefully. They were very nice, actually. Yeah. They were yeah. very respectful and very nice. So no problem there. I think that some of the work that you guys are doing outside of the hospital and like the whole VBAC uh, assembly, you, have, you know, has to take an effect, even if the people that are running the department are obtuse, you know, the, the, the nurses and stuff, they're, they're getting it. They're hearing it from the clients too. They're hearing it from the women of their community. Mm -hmm. you know, they live in that community. So that's right. Um, I have a couple more things that I'd like to talk about before we talk about all things amniotic fluid. <laughs> One of them is a letter from Hannah and uh, she, she writes this. Hi, Dr. Stu and bliss. My name is Hannah and I live in Nebraska. I am currently 16 weeks into my third pregnancy. In my first pregnancy, I had placenta previa and had automatic C-section at 37 weeks. With my second pregnancy, I successfully VBAC'd in a hospital setting in Hastings, Nebraska. Via an induction, she was induced at 39 weeks per hospital policy. And then she says, insert eye roll. <laughs> okay, parentheses. But overall, I was fairly happy and felt empowered with my second son's birth. I felt like I had taken back my power and that to me was special. Now that I'm having baby post-pandemic, my BS monitor is on high alert even more. And I'm trying to prep to make sure I still have choices and my needs wants are met within the limited options I have. Home birth is not allowed in Nebraska with a licensed practitioner. So that I recently- just crazy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I would love to do a psychological testing on the people that decided that that was a good idea and find out why they think that's such a good idea. Um, I mean, even though you had to transport somebody, it's like, yeah, that happens, but it happens not because they were at home. So I recently had an interesting situation happen within the clinic I work with. I work with a certified midwife there, and my complaint today is not at all about her. Overall, she's a very good advocate for birth choice and works well for the hand she has dealt with limited options for mothers in Nebraska. However, I just got off the phone with patient accounts after receiving a letter in the mail regarding my insurance information, letting me know next time I was in, I would be sitting down with patient accounts to review my overall costs of the birth. Mm -hmm. This is standard within the clinic, as I remember having this type of meeting for our other two pregnancies. However, even after successfully VBACing baby number two, the patient accounts circled the cost and code line, CPT code 59510, cesarean section delivery package. She sent me the form package. for reference. Mm -hmm. 
package, right? Package. Mm -hmm. I wasn't about to sign and fill this out as I felt it was incorrect, as I have full intention on VBACing this time too. So I try to understand why they circled that and not the vaginal birth option. So I gave the patient accounts a call. A lady answered, I was kind. I just kindly said, I'm trying to understand why cesarean birth was circled when I intend to have a vaginal birth. I successfully VBACed my second son, and I want to do that again. Her response to me was this, quote, a VBAC is the same price as a cesarean. We don't have a code line for a VBAC, unquote. My response was, I intend to have a vaginal birth, yet I am charged $400 more because it's classified as a VBAC, yet labeled and priced out as a cesarean. In my mind, a vaginal birth is a vaginal birth. Why the increase in cost? Can someone explain that to me? She then refused to explain. She just repeated that a VBAC is the same price as a cesarean, and so that's why they circled it, and maybe the gal I meet with at the next appointment could explain it to me then. She got short and totally would not answer my question. I go next Thursday, which of course was last week, and for my monthly appointment, I will guess, I guess we'll review and hopefully get my question answered. But this seems silly, right? Right? Yeah, it does. Just another way more money can be made. Lack of explanation, information, lack of informed consent, all being violated. I really wish Bliss or you could come to Nebraska and just have me help my baby at home. Because if I could, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah, and then Bliss and I would end up in prison, right? <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, no, I, wish we could respond. I love the podcast. I love that you guys give re real no BS information. I just want to know why a VBAC is more expensive than a regular vaginal birth. Why was that so hard for them to answer? Am I being ridiculous? Is it really more expensive? Thanks, Hannah. All right. So I have a take on this. Do you want to say anything before I give you my take on this? Yeah. I mean, well, a VBAC being more expensive, let's just take that separately. There I have heard of several situations where um, practitioners are charged $500 or $1,500 per VBAC client from their liability insurance. So if that cost is being passed on, unfortunately, that sucks for VBAC moms, but that could be potentially that's a good, what that's that a good could point. be. Although the hospital yeah. wouldn't be billing for the doctor. So no, yeah. but the fact, the fact that the uh, cesarean is only $400 more than a vaginal birth is surprising to me, but I a hundred percent agree with you that if you are wanting to have a vaginal birth and actually are successful in having a vaginal delivery, that you should not be paying the extra $400 unless someone can explain it to you. That makes a hundred, that makes so much sense to me. And yeah, this, they, they probably don't have a very high statistic rate. So they just know that most of these moms who are attempting a VBAC will probably end up with a cesarean. Yeah, for me, this is just even simpler than that. It's, a, it's an example of what we talked about. It's complicating the simple. Why other, I mean, I know why. Insurance companies require pre-authorization so the hospitals can get money. This is, it's just, it's just hoop after hoop after hoop after hurdle after hoop after hurdle to jump through to get the same piss poor amount of reimbursement that you got before. It's kind of like what you said earlier, that now in order to apply for disability insurance or to get your NIPT drawn, you've got to have facial recognition software. I mean, this is insane. Can you imagine you know, going to a restaurant where before you ordered your food, you had to get prior authorization? 
because you know it's kind of like that movie la story where the guy doesn't have the bank account to get the steak so he can only get the fish or something like that or the chicken he can't get the fish because he doesn't i mean they mocked it 20 years ago in that movie steve martin and it's the same thing now there's no reason that all they need all this bureaucracy it just creates jobs for people that aren't doing anything to help with the service that the woman is looking for and we see this all over the place so you know there's just a lot of there's just a lot of fuckery going on and she called it <laughs> she called it coding fuckery is what she called it to me one more thing i'd like to read is it a quickie yeah it's from jen okay. it's, my, it's from our friend jen margulis hi and jen I it, what i said hi jen oh hi jen <laughs> and um <laughs> i just think it ties in so jen writes this was uh, the first week in october she writes, some of us are immovable in our beliefs. Others, others constantly search out new information and change our minds about things. Like you and I, Liz. We try. Like everyone else, I have strong biases. I'm, I'm biased in favor of women being empowered to have their babies where and how they feel most comfortable. Home birth, anyone? <laughs> I believe that kindness matters and that we should, we should parent children gently and also be gentle with ourselves. And I also believe that medical doctors have an ethical responsibility to tell patients all their options when it comes to making health decisions. And I don't like prejudice, misogyny, or hypocrisy. I also strive imperfectly to be open-minded and willing to listen to new information on any given subject and to change my mind or refine my ideas based on new information. But changing a belief is very difficult, as we know. When scientists began realizing that the COVID-19 vaccines did not work to prevent COVID or stop its spread, Instead of halting the vaccine program, which would have been the most scientific and healthiest choice, they just changed the definition of a vaccine. You probably know this already. We've been lied to about masking, social distancing, and about safety, efficacy, and necessity of mRNA vaccines. And then I added in here, when the US hospital maternal care system ranks near 40th in the world and cesarean rates are 30 to 70%, why do they keep lying and telling us it's so good? All right, that's the old money ball theory. If he's such a good hitter, how come he doesn't hit good? You know, if our system is such good at providing maternity care, how come it provides crappy maternity care? So, yeah, but um, you know, I was just going to say, when we're faced with those kinds of things, Stu, yeah. I don't even uh, look to them to say, why do they keep telling us it's so good? Why aren't we waking up? Why do we hear these statistics and, and not, and hear the history and all of this stuff? And we're still trusting them, believing them, buying into the system. You know, this is, this is where I get frustrated. It's like, we have so many conversations about, you know, the, the abuse and the lack of respect that's happening at the hospital and people not listening to you and having to hire a doula and all of this stuff that's going on and the statistics, yet we keep going there. And that part is what I don't understand. I, I think that's brilliant. And I think that, you know, it's not just that, that why this happens and why do people lie, but you're right. Why is it that everyone believe, believes the lies? And again, if you read uh, Matthias Desmet's book, you, you'll begin to understand why people believe the lies when they're just bombarded every day with propaganda mm -hmm. and the media carry the water for propagandists and big pharma and for whoever it is that's in power and, they, and no one challenges them. That was what the fourth estate was for. That was what the media was supposed to do was to challenge um, yeah. the establishment. And that's not what they do anymore. Yeah. Um, but so Jen continues, she, she sort of answers your question here, or she just gives an explanation. She says, let's insist in believing that these are well-intentioned people who cared as deeply about the nation's health and any individual well-being as you and I do. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Most of them, but um, mm-hmm. the sheep I do, but not the shepherds. But she says, but wait, if these aren't evil people perpetuating a false agenda, then why are they lying, censoring science and shutting down honest and open discussions about alternatives? And if you had, if you got the vaccines or had a distressing hospital birth experience or unnecessary and you're feeling sorry you did so, how did you get so easily duped? Which is what you're asking, sort of, right? Yeah. Okay. So what she says is, what I always say is, you, you know, when you're in a box, you can't see outside the box. She says it differently. She says, a fish can't see the water it swims in. Mm-hmm. When you spend your life in an echo chamber, speaking only to people who share your beliefs, it doesn't even cross your mind that you may be wrong. The idea that the human immune system or reproductive system are inherently flawed and that the modern science must rescue it so deeply ingrained in the big pharma-funded worldview that most people in medicine cannot even entertain the idea that there are ways to support healthy immunity and options that have nothing to do with vaccines or interventions. And also, they have too much skin in the game. You know, follow Mm. the money. When everything you espouse not only resonates with all the people around you, but also benefits you financially, professionally, and socially, it's very hard to see anything else. One of the quotes I use at my uh, Reteach Breach seminars is by Upton Sinclair, which I love because it says it's hard to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are right now. The mRNA yeah. vaccines have generated mind-boggling amounts of money for this elite. C-section birth is much more lucrative for hospitals and doctors in vaginal birth. So, of course, that emergency C-section your doctor did and the hospital was paid double to perform was absolutely medically necessary. At least that's what he thinks. Chronically ill people make big money for big medicine. So if you're wondering who to trust and who to believe, I recommend finding out what hands are feeding them. The CDC takes huge amounts of money from big pharma. Big pharma and other big industries are also funding most of our legacy media outlets. Medical doctors also benefit enormously from giving vaccines and doing volume obstetrics. Ka-ching, ka-ching. The whole basis of the pediatric practice is to vaccinate your kids. If there was no vaccine schedule, how many people would be taking their kids routinely to the pediatrician? Almost never. Don't. <laughs> What's that? My client, my clients don't. Right. Yeah, they just are like, I go when I need. The you might need to go. You might need to go when your kid needs a physical to play uh, high school soccer. Okay, yes. then you mm-hmm. might go. But other than that, mm-hmm. why would you take healthy people at that age to the doctor? But there, and then they also she adds the last thing she adds is their oversized egos won't let them stop lying. If you agree with me, and this is what I you know I have, I say it a different way, but Jen has such a great command of the English language and words. Yeah. that I wanted to read this. If you agree with me that most people are trying to do good, then you will understand why it's so hard for them to stop lying to the public and to themselves. Admitting you've done something wrong, however inadvertently, is really painful. Your ego can't let you recognize the truth. So in order to save your own face, you continue to perpetuate lie after lie. Until that is, the evidence against you is what you've been telling people or personal disaster is so overwhelming that even your ego can no longer prevent you from seeing it. Many insiders... People who have never had a reason to question medicine, cultural assumptions are now slowly facing a crisis of confidence. They're beginning to understand that they've been horribly duped. And the issue is, Bliss, is that because you and I are independent practitioners, we can freely speak out. And yes, come January 1st, my license might be threatened by what I just read um, in California because of Assembly Bill 2098. But I don't have a- You're moving to Utah. Yeah, well, I, that's part of the reason. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't have a, a master that can fire me. I don't have an insurance company that can, uh, you know, kick me off their panel. 
Yeah. You know, I don't have a medical malpractice carrier who tells me I can't do something. So I can speak freely and I don't have a, and, and I don't have a financial windfall to get by speaking freely. People can look and see, you know, how much am I making by putting this podcast out there? You can, you can tell them. <laughs> Speaking of which, I think it's I in the negatives, money. by yeah, the way, <laughs> I lose money every week and it's worth it to me to do that. So, you know, I was thinking about you this morning. I know we're going to move on to the topic now. I'm so excited. Um, but I was thinking about you this morning and I was thinking like, I'm grateful and I'm grateful for our fellow travelers and everybody who gets to be touched by the work that you do and by this podcast um, for, you know, all the time and energy that you put into thinking about this. And, and, you know, I've mentioned this before, like I see other providers grappling with the, the handcuffs that you are just pointed to that you don't have, that gives you the ability to be able to speak freely and and how you untangled yourself from that was courage. And so well, I acknowledge you for your ability to be so courageous to think outside of the box and to be willing to put yourself at risk um, to talk about these things that you in your heart know are important. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just say thank you. Um, it's also improvising. You know, when you are being forced into doing something that you don't want to do, or you are being told that your privileges will not be renewed because you are doing things we don't like, uh, even though you're honoring your client's request and you're doing something that is certainly supported by the medical literature, um, mm -hmm. you, you, could, you could acquiesce, you could cry, you could quit, or mm -hmm. you could do what my midwife colleagues forced me to do, which was to improvise and become... Yeah, and they evolved, right? Yeah, you've evolved. Okay, you know what time it is. Let's take a break for a second and talk about our sponsor, Element. Element T. I thought um, I would uh, do a special chocolate edition, give some love to the chocolate salt because I had um, said, what do you do with chocolate salt? And I think it's because I'm not a big chocolate person, but our listeners came up with a bunch of suggestions, which I thought was really fun. So um if you, if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you don't know what Element is, it's a tasty electrolyte drink with um, none of the BS like us and all of the good stuff. Um, and it is salt. It doesn't have sugar in it. So it's got like a salty flavor to it. So I was thinking, huh, chocolate salt. What do you do with that? So one of our listeners said um, you could put it in chia seed pudding. I thought was really a great way of thinking about it or in a chocolate protein shake. And I think you got someone who reached out to you, Stu. Yeah. From an Instagram traveler, she said the chocolate salt is really good if you mix it strong and think about it as drinking a chocolate dipped pretzel because that's what it tastes like. So in other words, yeah, don't put a lot of water in it, make it really concentrated. And it's like dipping a pretzel. I love that. And then another one of our listeners said, instead of water, you could put it in milk, which an interesting way of thinking about it so it'd be like chocolate salt milk um and then or you can make ice cream with it which would be awesome for labor if you think about it i'm not i'm not sure i'm going to be doing the uh the pudding one that's not uh that's not in my pudding <laughs> it's not in my repertoire but that's okay so this is um, this, yeah this is one of our favorite sponsors uh they've been with us for quite a while now so okay. if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com, and put in the code word birthing instincts you get a free sample pack with everything that you order. And it comes in a multitude of flavors besides chocolate, which I'll just briefly mention. Grapefruit, watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw unflavored, mango chili, and lemon habanero. 
So support them because they support our podcast. And we want to say thank you to Element. Thanks, Element. Okay, great. So the reason why I suggested this as a topic is because there was a uh, woman considering doing a home birth and her mom was really against it because her mom had had an amniotic embolism. And so I thought it would be really interesting to ask you about that, but also that we had never talked about just amniotic fluid in general. And there's so many things that go into that that I thought that that would be a really interesting topic. So let's first talk about um, the anatomy of the bag of waters that surrounds the baby. What's going on? You got flies? There's a fly. Yeah, it's really bugging me. <laughs> and your cat says. My cat, well, I'm not, in, I'm not in my van today. I'm in the birth center in uh, Lubbock. So. Your van. <laughs> okay. Um, so there, we've talked about this before, but I think that's a good place to start is that around the baby, as it's developing inside of the uterus is a amniotic sac. And there's two layers to the amniotic sac. There's a amnion and a chorion. And um, a lot of people don't know that, but they're so thin and, and there's two layers. And the reason why that's important is because when we start to talk about fluid leaking, um, sometimes there can be a release of one of the bags, but not both of the bags. And since that becomes, especially in the medical model, something that there's so much emphasis on whether or not your waters have released and the clock starts and all of that. It's good for people to know, especially um, the fam the pregnant families that listen to our podcast, um, that sometimes you can have a little bit of either what we call a high leak. So that's up at the top um, or the, that the two bags, one might release and the other one stays intact. So anything you want to add about the uh, yeah. anatomy of the bag? Yeah. Um, uh, up until about 15, 16 weeks, the amnion and chorion are separate. And there's, a, there's amniotic fluid, which everyone has probably heard of. And then there's chorionic fluid, which is the fluid between the two. By around 14, 15, 16 weeks, the amnion fuses with the chorion and forms the bag of waters, which is a two-layered sac. However, sometimes there is fluid that persists between the amnion and chorion. It's small amount, you can't really see it on ultrasound, but so when people have this, what we consider to be a high leak or something, sometimes it may be that the chorion has given way and a little bit of fluid leaks out, but the amnion is still intact. You don't really know for a fact, but it's sometimes when you see somebody complaining of leaking and then you do a sterile spec exam on them and there's no fluid in there and there's no ferning and it's nitrazine negative, but they give a really good story of mm -hmm. water that came out and it, and it wasn't because they were in the bathtub an hour earlier or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, it may very well be. And then you do a quick scan and you see that their amniotic fluid index is perfectly normal. So it mm -hmm. clearly would be very unlikely that they leaked. And we talk about sealing over, really not sure how that even, I can't even Possible. fathom that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like there was the whole if the hole is big enough to let the water out, are the cells then suddenly going to grow back together again? No, I don't well, think, think so. about what we say about a vagina. Right. We say, I don't think it, I don't talk about them very much, but what do you, what, what do you say? What? Of course you do. <laughs> um, there was one, a midwife that worked with us and she said, if you have uh, a, a side of a vagina on one side of the room and then on the other side of the room, they're going to find their way together. It's kind of like how the mouth oh, feels. after yeah. tear when they tear. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you imagine having a small tear at the top that the water wouldn't like put pressure on it and then the cells kind of 
mended the way that your skin mends, it's possible. True, but why would, why would there be a, a, a tear at the top? I mean, what, that, yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. But anyway. So, yeah. So that's the embryology of, of the amnion and the chorion, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't need to get into twins right now. We'll talk about that some other time. Well, we have already. We talked about chorionicity okay. in our twin, you know, our twin trollic podcast. Great. So I would love for you maybe to talk about polyhydramnios, which is to overproduction of fluid and olighydramnios, which is uh, less fluid than what we would expect is normal. So okay. maybe talk about those two. So let's first talk about where does the fluid come from? Great. And you know, in the, in the time that it really of. matters, like in the second, third trimester, most of the fluid is fetal urine. The baby pees on itself. Some of it is secretions from the membranes themselves. Probably some of it is from the lungs. Um, but that's pretty much where the fluid comes from is the baby peeing on itself. So essentially it's fetal urine. And urine is sterile, so it's not a gross thing. It's, and the circulation yeah, of the amniotic fluid is such that if the baby kept peeing in there and it didn't go out, then the uterus would just explode. Okay. You know, those of us who live in an RV know that if we don't eventually drain our black water tank, it will fill up. Okay. <laughs> right. Yes. So that's an RV life reference, but, mm-hmm. but, um, so the baby that get rid of the baby's fluid, how does the baby get rid of it? It swallows it. Mm-hmm. So it pees and swallows, it pees and swallows and the fluid it swallows and goes into its stomach gets absorbed into its bloodstream. Some of it goes back out through the kidneys and back into the water. Some of it gets obviously transmitted to the mother who gets rid of it. And there's this natural homeostasis, which keeps the amniotic fluid volume in what we consider to be the normal range. And I'm not going to talk about the volume of it because that changes depending on your gestational age. But mm-hmm. there's a subjective look at the fluid. You know it's normal or you know, you know it looks like there's too much or too little. So, and you get good at palpating. You can feel that. You can feel when there's an above average amount of fluid or the fluid feels low. That's something that you don't necessarily always have to have an ultrasound to measure. You can, you can see what's normal and what's not feel. What's You're such a midwife. Thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad that that's, a compliment. that's my role. I'm glad yeah. I mean, cause I don't think that that's really taught real well. Um, you know, fundal height is a way we measure. The, the, we use that once you get to be about 22, 22 weeks, you can start to use the tape measure. And if you see a sudden change in that, you worry about one of the things that's in the differential diagnosis would be polyhydramnios, which is too much fluid. And, and also, honestly, when you feel it, what I, how I describe it, it's kind of like a balloon of water. And then when you're trying to palpate the baby, once you know, like the sizes of the babies and stuff, um, when you try and palpate the baby, it feels like you were trying to grab onto like a ping pong ball inside of this water balloon. If you could imagine that that's really full, you can't quite put your hands around it. It's mostly the fluid. So that's one of the ways that if I was describing to you what it feels like. Yeah, and the, and the uterus feels tenser too. And sometimes it's it's uh, yeah. a, little, a little harder Without to palpate anything. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. mechanism of that is that the baby's either peeing too much or not swallowing enough. That's clearly what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so babies that have poly related to diabetes, they're probably making more urine than they're swallowing, or there's or there's something, or you know, sometimes you can diagnose a congenital anomaly like something called esophageal atresia, because the baby will develop poly because the esophagus isn't connected to the baby's stomach. And so the baby can't swallow the fluid. So you get too much fluid. Now that's something that's fixable shortly after birth. So that's not, not a horrible thing. It requires surgery mm-hmm. to fix, but, mm-hmm. but, um, 
so that's you know that's where polyhydramnios comes from, and the, obviously there's risks with polyhydramnios. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want me to talk about that, I can do that. No, I don't think we can. We'll get into all the specifics of each one of these, but um, okay. but yes, there are risk factors for both of those. But knowing that that is something that as providers we're we're looking for. So we're looking for that that the fluid is present. Obviously, it hasn't leaked out, and that there's a normal amount of fluid. So assessing whether or not you're within the normal range too. Okay. Okay, great. And then what would cause amniotic embolism? Oh, amniotic fluid embolism. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a whole different thing. Okay. That's rare. So rare. It is very rare. Um, It can happen in pregnancy. It can happen in labor. It can happen at a C-section. It can happen up to 30 minutes postpartum. With when a woman goes into some sort of shock and doesn't have another explanation like blood loss or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what it is, and what you know, people think of embolism as some like a plug that goes up and plugs an artery or something like that. That's not really what amniotic fluid embolism is. It's sort of a misnomer because what it is really is an anaphylactic reaction um, to, we believe, to something in the fetal squamous cells. So, you know, amniotic fluid probably gets into most women uh, in small amounts at some point. I don't know whether it's, you know, common or whatever. So why a woman has a amniotic fluid embolism is harder to, harder to know because it's not like a clump of fluid goes up and blocks an artery, like mm-hmm. a pulmonary embolism would be with, with a blood clot. That's a different mm-hmm. thing. It's really mm-hmm. an anaphylactic reaction. So what happens is the, is the lungs become filled with fluid and leaky and, and people can't breathe and the oxygenation goes down and they go into shock and they can actually have cardiac arrest. Um, it's, it's, it's a very devastating thing. Most women, it used to be that survival from an amniotic fluid is, embolism was less than 50%. Now it's about 80%. Uh, obviously, if it happens in the, you know, in the home setting or something, it might be slightly less, but it's so rare that it's not something you would ever like tell people they can't deliver in a birth center or home because they might have an amniotic fluid embolism because it's completely unpredictable. There's no yeah. way to know whether that, that you, that a person's going to have that allergic reaction or not, or why. Um, but it's a very scary thing because, uh, because there's uh, almost always where that happens, there'll be some mom will have, you know, when mom survives, there'll be some neurologic impairment. Hmm. And there'll also be potentially if it's prior to the delivery of the baby with the mom in labor, and the mom goes becomes shocky and hypotensive and hypoxic, that there'll be some likelihood to fetal damage as well. So mm-hmm. the question of why it happens, Bliss, I mean, or what happened to you, that mom that you're talking about, is there's mm-hmm. no way to know that. Okay. Uh, Just one of those freaky things. It's a freaky thing. And mm-hmm. the question really comes, what happens if you have that and you survive? What should, should you be pregnant again? That's also an unknown. And I know this because part of my reteach breach seminar, I do obstetric emergencies and I, and I talk about, uh, um, amniotic fluid embolism. So that's why I sort of know these statistics, uh, mm-hmm. about that. It is, again, it's not predictable. And what, what our practitioners should do if they suspect it is you get an IV and you give them as much fluid as you can get them. You support their airway, you give them oxygen and you get them to, uh, a facility as soon as possible. You call 911 is the first thing you always do. With something like that. But again, it's one of those things that, that if a woman starts, her mental status starts to change, or she complains of being shortness of breath or whatever else you need to have high, high levels of suspicion, but it's so rare. Yeah. Right. And when you say support her airway, what did you mean by that? Just, well, just make sure that she, you know, that, 
that she's breathing. I don't mean that she's going to, it's not like a seizure where you support the airway, but if she passes out or whatever else, you know, you want to be able to support the airway. So in other words, if we don't do it, we don't intubate at home, but theoretically mm -hmm. that's what they do at the hospital. Not for a mom. Right. If she's yeah. hypoxic and she's, or she's unconscious, you can't tell her to take deeper breaths and slow down. You, I mean, you, you can't talk to her because she's unconscious. So yeah. Um, if your mom's unconscious at home, you should transport. <laughs> that's, that's the expert advice here from birthing instincts. In right. case you didn't know that one. Mic drop for bliss. That's a, That's a joke. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about um, low fluid at term uh, inductions. Well, let's talk a little bit about why babies end up with lower fluid, first of all. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the normal, the normal amniotic fluid volume is measured by a, a ultrasound, and they use either two, one of two choices. They either use deepest vertical pocket or they use... Um, four quadrants and, and deepest vertical pocket. If it's more than two centimeters or a four quadrant measurement, that's more than five centimeters is considered normal amniotic fluid. There's no medical. Ultrasound. Yes. By ultrasound. And there's no mm -hmm. technical definition for the word lowish fluid. Okay. <laughs> lowish fluid is a subjective viewpoint that often will be said to get people to sort of start to worry more and get them to comply and be funneled down the path of probably being induced. Now, again, I'm measuring measuring the AFI amniotic fluid index, which mm -hmm. you do on ultrasound, is also subjective to a certain degree, is it not? True. Yes. Yeah, you I could, mean, I've watched could, people. Yeah, you could watch two different people measuring the same woman five minutes apart, and they'll get different numbers. Of course, it is. Right. Right. But mm -hmm. the but the question is not is the fluid low, but how is the rest of the baby looking? All right, because a baby that has lowish fluid, say it's AFI is six or seven or eight or even four, all right, if the rest of the biophysical profile is perfectly normal, in our model, that is not an indication to tell them they need to immediately go in for an induction. In the medical model, that's what they'll be told mm -hmm. because the, you know they'll they'll tell them the the cord will get compressed or your placenta is not working well or some you know other thing where where that may be perfectly normal for that baby. And I will know I know that because in Frank Breach babies, um most of us that do them regularly, we often see lower amniotic fluid volumes in frank breech babies, which is a confounding factor why they might get stuck frank breech. Um, and we th I, my theory is, is that maybe when they're folded like that, they don't perfuse their kidneys as well and they don't make as much urine, but that's purely a theory, but mm -hmm. it makes sense to me because mm -hmm. I see it, well, I see it consistently. So mm -hmm. is it a chicken or the egg thing? Are they low fluid because they're frank breech or are they frank breech because they're low fluid? I don't. Uh, right. It doesn't really matter. Um, but what it does signify is that the baby's making less urine generally. All right. Now, some babies will have low fluid all along. And if, there's, if their fluid is running low, but it's stable all along, that's perfectly fine. You're looking for the baby that has a, an AFI of 10. And then for whatever reason, you're testing her again in three days or seven days or whatever else. And now it's four. That would be more concerning than a baby that's four all the time. Okay. Got that? Mm -hmm. I want to make sure. I just also, I just also always wonder because I think from a midwifery perspective with like little to no technology and, you know, um, how normal birth moves forward. And I wonder how many of my clients who don't go in for an ultrasound close to their delivery, that is very standard now in the traditional medical model. How many of those people would be assessed as low fluid who go on to deliver with zero complications um, because we're not looking for that 
issue. So it's, it's one of those things like you've talked about before, like getting an ultrasound in your third trimester without a clinical indication is, you know, leads to more and more interventions. And this is one of those ones that, you know, unless there's a problem, you may want to just decline. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that uh, a lot of doctors will tell women at 39 weeks or 40 weeks that if you're not delivered by with, within the next few days that we're going to start testing your baby. There's no data to support that testing, starting testing at 39 or 40 weeks. Um, the data doesn't, I mean, it, if it is data, it's skewed and, and biased because it doesn't make any sense to do that. Because what you end up doing is you end up inducing a lot of women who didn't need to be induced. Right. And I don't know that statistically that that makes a lot of sense because we, again, we look at induction as an intervention and that there may be long-term consequences too that we really don't all fully understand at this point. Right. But a, a baby that has got a low amniotic fluid volume, it could be because there's a problem. And there's ways to assess that. With the biophysical profile, you could do what's called color Doppler flow studies to look at the flow into the uterine arteries and the baby's and the baby's middle cerebral artery and umbilical artery. And you can try to see if there's a problem there um, because it would imply that the baby's uh, not making enough urine. And that can be a problem, but we don't know it's a problem. And so as an isolated finding, it's only one of a piece of a puzzle. You shouldn't just use that alone. And when doctors tell you that your fluid is low or lowish and that they're concerned about it, you should ask them about, well, how's the rest of the baby look? Is there fetal breathing? Is the baby moving? Does the baby have normal tone? How's the, how's the fetal heart rate tracing? Are there any variables implying that there's cord compression? Is there any evidence of decelerations implying the placental insufficiency? Of any, if there's not, then you could ask the question, do I really need to be induced for this or can I come back in a few days and just... Just see, and maybe, maybe you know, I don't know that drinking more water necessarily will make a difference and hydrating yourself, but if the, you haven't been drinking enough, certainly that can help. And also sometimes getting off your feet, maybe laying on your left side where you have increased uh, perfusion of your placenta because you're not compressing the great vessels that run behind it is a way to um, maybe improve, improve perfusion, which then will improve flow to the baby, which then may, baby makes more urine as the more blood flows through the kidneys. So. That's how it all yeah, works. So from a midwifery perspective, um, we do talk about uh, increasing not just water, but things that are hydrating. So things like uh, watermelon juice, cucumber juice, things like that, adding a little bit of salt to your water, maybe even a little element. Um, and yes, less activity. Like if you're someone who's walking and, and exercising and stuff like that, before you go to get the screen, just, you know, kind of lay low to see if that makes a difference. And in terms of polyhydramnios, one of the things that I found when I had a client that had that is if you lower your carbs, it tends to make a big impact, increase your protein, lower your carbs, which is how we talk to women, uh, in terms of nutritionally and pregnancy anyways, but it can, it can make a difference unless there's an actual real clinical indication like gestational diabetes or that the baby has, um, an anomaly that we're dealing with. Yeah. And a lot of doctors will use a specific number to diagnose oligo or polyhydramnios. And, you know, for me, you know, I don't like perfect numbers like that. You know that. I, I I think it's more of a subjective thing where you just know it when you see it. It just looks it looks funny. There's too much fluid. You can just see it right away when you do a scan. Or you guys, when you palpate, you can just tell it just doesn't quite feel like the normal 38 week yeah. belly or something like that. So yeah. Um, yeah. And then of course a rapid increase in fundal height. And we all we you know one of the things we talk about in prenatal visits is we always tell people if you notice some sort of weird 
funny change in your belly or whatever else, make sure you let us know. Um, mm -hmm. You know, just as part of normal prenatal care, not to frighten people, but just to say, you know, if, if something doesn't feel right, if you suddenly your face looks puffy or you get a headache or whatever, we, we always explain to people about letting us know about those sorts of things too. Yeah. And, you know, it's like putting the power back in the hands of the mom, right? It's like, you're the closest thing to the baby. You know how the baby's moving. You know how your belly feels. You're in your body every day. We trust you to be able to communicate and report um, if something feels off. So I think that's right. And, and, and realizing that, that most of the time when something is wrong, there's clinical signs and symptoms of the mother that the mother will notice that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. The medical model is looking at everybody trying to find things that are wrong. It's got, you know, it's, analogies popped in my head. It used to be that when there was a crime, then you, you investigated the crime to find the culprit. Now, sometimes they're investigating a culprit to see if they can find a crime, <laughs> right? It's backwards. It's sort of the mm -hmm. same thing here. We, you know, the medical model assumes that something's going to go wrong. So we're going to screen everybody. And then we're going to, to try to avoid everything that goes wrong. We're going to end up collecting in a lot of people who didn't have anything wrong, but they got sucked into it and got induced for no reason. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to our model where we trust birth and we trust the idea that for the most part, nature is going to signal the woman that something isn't right. She's going to feel funny. It's going to, it's not, yeah. something's going to change. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about rupture of membranes. So there's um, okay. uh, spontaneous rupture of membranes that could either be preterm or um, term, and then there's artificial rupture of membranes. So I'll right. let you start. Okay, well, let's start with spontaneous rupture of membranes. And obviously spontaneous preterm rupture of membranes is a problem because you know, the baby it depends when it happens. If it happens at 34, 35, 36 weeks, it's not that big a deal. Um, again, in our model, it's a big deal because we can't care for people, you guys can't, for before 37 weeks in most states. When you have somebody who has a premature rupture of memories, obviously, if it happens at 23, 24, 25 weeks, that's a huge problem. So I don't know. We're not going to talk, get into causes of that. I think that that's more uh, yeah, of a different another, talk. another topic. But then, yeah. So, you know, when that happens, and generally if it's preterm, what the what the practitioner is going to want you to do, the hospital-based practitioner or us, is they're going to want to try buy some time for that baby. And they generally are going to try to buy, buy about 48 hours of ruptured membranes. Now that now that violates their 24-hour rule of it's dangerous to go past 24 hours. But they find that if you give a baby 48 hours of ruptured membranes, it's less likely to have any respiratory problem. And also, if they're you know if they're younger than about thirty four weeks, I think now they're still even with ruptured membranes, they're still giving steroids to help the baby's lungs mature. And I may be wrong on that because I've been out of the hospital system, and I think these, these things sort of change periodically. So if you know anything different, please please let me know. Well, uh, what I was going to tell you is I'm working on a on a family that uh, right now they're very early in their postpartum period, but have them come on as guests. She actually had a spontaneous preterm rupture of membranes in Hawaii on vacation. So they went into the hospital and they wanted to um, keep them there and they decided that they weren't going to stay. And so they went and they were stable at home and they finally eventually flew home and ended up doing a free birth. And it was 10 weeks later. Was she continuously leaking the whole time? 
Yes. Or did it, did it come in spurts and then stop and come in spurts and then stop? Well, I don't know. That would be a question we would ask her, but yes, it was okay. definitely a Yeah. Rupture. I mean, I, I've had people that have had ruptured membranes early who, who bought up to that long. You know, we monitor them closely. They don't seem to get infected if you leave their cervixes alone and don't do any vaginal exams. Mm-hmm. Very rare. It mm-hmm. happens sometimes. And there's not, you know, that again, it's sometimes it's not preventable. But you'd um, have symptoms. You would know that. Oh, that yeah. You get, you get cramping and fever and yeah, mm-hmm. and even a foul smelling discharge could even happen. But mm-hmm. if you um, are leaking fluid, you have to realize that the baby is continuing to make more. Right. So sometimes that you see it in spurts because maybe it's the baby pees and then some leaks out. So that's why mm-hmm. you might see it in spurts. Yeah. But, but I tell people that because I'm like, it's not like it's the Sahara desert now, like it, like it emptied out and the baby's just in there and it's dry. It keeps, it keeps, um, generating more and more fluid. That's why you'll keep leaking. And so it's a good idea to put a pad on. That's yeah. true. If it's a, if it was a healthy baby to begin with, if there wasn't something mm-hmm. weird about the baby, some congenital right. problem with the baby where it didn't have kidneys or whatever else. And so you didn't really have hardly any fluid anyway. Um, mm-hmm. but yes, babies will continue to make more. And then the, then the assessment is, is that baby thriving in there or is it not thriving in there? Is the, you know, and it's a balance, it's a scale, you know, you balance prematurity against the risk of infection and you just figure out which one's going to be, and sometimes you're wrong and there's nothing, you know, that happens. It's okay yeah. to be wrong if you, if your motivation was, was, you know, proper and your informed consent was proper um, because you can't always know what's going to happen. And some women are going to get infected and their baby's going to get, come out septic or die, or they're going to get septic. But it's very rare that that happens. Most women who rupture their membranes, if they're not having vaginal exams, are not going to get an infection because it's almost like the bacteria in the vagina are going to get washed downstream every time the blood fluid comes out. It pushes right. down. That's, just, that's the visualization that I have in my brain. Yeah. And the studies that have been done about, um, you know, how, how long can you go when your bag is ruptured? Now we're moving into like uh, term, you know, pre- preterm is obviously not something that um, we're going to manage at home. Um, that's like the story that I just told is like definitely outside of the range of normal, which is why she ended up deciding to do a free birth because she knew that there wasn't a midwife who was going to be able to support her. Cause that's out of our scope of practice at that point. So, but if we're talking about a term, uh, spontaneous rupture of membranes, you know, there is usually a clock if you're working in the medical model and it's different depending on, on that practitioner's comfort level. That's correct. Sometimes they'll say that they want you to come in right away. Sometimes they'll say you have 12 hours, you need to deliver within 24 hours. I mean, there's all of these um, different protocols that they feel comfortable with. Um, There's a really great article on evidence-based birth about this that talks about it, which is where, where I, kind of made up my decisions about how to manage this besides obviously just giving informed consent. Um, but the studies that were done show that the increase in infections come from more and more vaginal exams. Right. So the, the most important thing to know as a, as a pregnant woman is um, to decline vaginal exams, to not put anything in the vagina, um, you know, to not sit in a bathtub for a really long time, you know, don't go swimming, don't get in your jacuzzi, those kinds of things that bacteria could get up into the vagina, no sex. Um, and take really good care of your body, up your immunity, your immunity boosters. Um, so making sure that your body can 
you know, work with any infection or any bacteria that might be present or be introduced. Um, when you're nice, your health is vital and strong. Your body's able to fight those things easier, change your pad often and take your temperature. Um, and then it's, you can wait and see. And most women will go into labor within 24 hours like 94, 96% of women will start active labor within 24 hours after a spontaneous rupture. And so we're talking about like an entire rupture, not a little bit of leaking, like we talked about earlier. Um, and actually I'm going to correct myself. I don't even really like rupture because it, it leads yeah. to like this scary, um, abnormal kind of thought process. Um, a lot of times midwives will use the language release, release. of waters, yeah. the waters release those kinds of things, because it's normal. It's not something scary or bad. It's just part of the process. And, um, yeah. So did you want to say anything about that time frame? That people yeah. Start to get really a couple things. First about? of all, first of all, I think it's really important when you think your waters have released <laughs> <laughs> or you're leaking fluid to confirm mm -hmm. that it's actually fluid. Yes, because it if can't it's get not confusing. fluid and they can't confirm it, then, then the, the if they start telling you about time and putting a clock on you, that then that doesn't make any sense. So if they can confirm it, or there's no fluid around the baby anymore, uh, even if they can't do a sterile spec exam or, or whatever, and and see ferning and see uh, pooling and nitrazine positive positivity. Um, that would be sort of another way of making giving evidence if there's no fluid around the baby anymore that the fluid has ruptured. But some women just know they've ruptured because or they mm -hmm. water's released because mm -hmm. um, it's just obvious. Obvious, you know, it's mm -hmm. in the movie. You see it in the movies all the time. You know, in the courtroom. Oh my god, you know, <laughs> her water came. And the next thing you know, the judge has a receiving blanket. It's really an interesting thing. <laughs> Yeah, it happened on uh, one of one of those lawyer shows. I re I don't remember who, but it the woman in the show was one of the actress was one of my clients. <laughs> and I gave her a crap for it when she came in for a visit because it's like she was at thirty four weeks and she ruptured her membranes in the courtroom. And the next thing is next scene is she's holding her baby in the on the floor in the courtroom, and she's the baby's wrapped in one of those receiving blankets you get at the hospital. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Right, it was pretty funny. Um, so first confirm, and then mm -hmm. when when you rupture, then you want to you you know it depends on your practitioner, as you said. There's there there there's no consistent protocol. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most common thing is they'll tell you that your baby should better be in labor or at least deliver within 24 hours, or be at least being in labor in 24 hours. And if it's not, then we want to start antibiotics. Even if you're GBS negative, they'll want to start antibiotic. I don't know that the data supports that. Yeah. At least in our model, most of us don't do that, and we don't end up with babies that are septic or mothers that are septic. Right. Um, and we think that the microbiome, again, we're trusting the body to do what it's supposed to do until the body tells us otherwise. Yeah. And the longest you've ever had was five days, right? Six. Six with twins. With those twins. Yeah. The yeah. mother was an mm -hmm. RN and she ended up mm -hmm. having a home twin birth in the water uh, mm -hmm. after being ruptured for six days. And it was annoying because she lived about <laughs> an hour and a half from me and I had to go out there every freaking day. To, to check, you know, to check the on the babies, okay. make sure they mm -hmm. were fine. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, but it was what we did. Were, yeah. you, were you in, were you at that birth? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was. Okay. Yeah. And, um, three, I think 72 hours, probably like my comfort level. Cause you know, if, if labor hasn't started at that point, um, you might need a little bit of help. And usually most women are interested in doing some things to get things going naturally, quote unquote, um, before that. And, and if we can't get her into labor, you know, at that, of course, 
I would do informed consent with somebody if they didn't feel that way. But that's usually where I'm going to suggest. Yeah, I mean, with, with a twin mom, we we were suggesting she go in. She just didn't, wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> okay. And then. And she um, was right. And she was right. Yeah. Everything was fine. Right. Um, it's an amnicator, right? Those little swabs that we use to mm-hmm. confirm. Yeah. I found out recently from Lindsay Milas that the FDA wrote her because she's the person who supplies my birth kits for my clients through Simply Birth. The FDA sent her a letter and said that it was it, that she couldn't hand those out to midwives, that we couldn't use those as an assessment. Yeah. Interesting, right? All it is is a little swab, the like a little cotton swab. Yep. Q-tip that, you know, changes colors if it's positive for amniotic fluid. It's not a real risky procedure. A mom can do it, which is we put it in the birth kit and we usually give them inform, you know, educate them on using it if they think maybe that they're leaking fluid just so that we know how to, you know, counsel them and manage things. Um, so can anyways, I, can, that, I, can I just uh, digress off of fluid for just a second since you brought up the FDA? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Um, Although we are running long. <laughs> well, just real quickly, um, today or tomorrow, the ACIP panel, which is the advisory committee on something, something, <laughs> uh, part of the NIH or part of the NIH or CDC is going to decide whether or not to approve um, the COVID vaccine for children as part of the vaccine schedule. In other mm-hmm. words, your kid won't be able to go to school unless it gets a mm-hmm. COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was listening to people talking about this. And apparently the reason that they're going to try to do this is because if it's on the vaccine schedule, once it comes off emergency youth authorization, then they have this immunity from 1986 act and they, they can't be sued for it. And if mm-hmm. otherwise they can, if it's not on the schedule. So mm-hmm. it's almost a foregone conclusion that these bastards on the ACIP panel are going to approve this. Now that's going to cause a huge uproar because there's no evidence that this actually is good in kids. And there's actually evidence that it's detrimental in kids. And and you're going to make kids get this shot that does no good and possibly detriment to go to school, to go to public school that your talk stars are paying for. They don't, I don't think these people realize that with the the sleeping giant that they've woken uh, with what's going on. So I'll just stop with that. But I just wanted to put that out there because that's happening like tomorrow. Yeah. So frustrating. Okay. Homeschool. Um, All right. So this is probably one of my biggest pet peeves with modern obstetrics is I feel like almost every birth story I hear now these days, they're rupturing membrane. And it's just so frustrating for me because it's so it's, there's no real clinical indication. I would say probably almost ever, there might be a couple outliers. Maybe you'll tell me some from your history in the hospital. You uh, do so, it causes so many other problems that we're not talking about. And that is what's so frustrating for me. So it comes from a lack of patience. Um, They want to move things along, but there are so many things that could potentially be affected by that. One is the baby's position. So if your baby's in a funky position and now the waters have released, the baby doesn't have as much ability to be able to maneuver around and get into a better position. We have the, the possibility of now that the waters have released, that there's a possibility that the cord could get pinched in some way. Um, and that could be a problem that doesn't necessarily need to be a problem. Then we get into, oh, the water's released. 
And now your baby's acting, you know, like not responding well to it. So now let's just put in a synthetic form of your amniotic fluid up in there to fix the problem that we just caused by breaking the water. Um, and so for me, it's also very sacred, you know, the baby being born in the call and call is very sacred. And, um, I believe is a part of the design that keeps the baby insulated, safe, protected, um, and comforted during this time. So for me, I just don't understand why we're so impatient with labor and we don't respect we don't respect this process so much that we just think that that's not a big deal to just, let me just break your water. Well, I want to add one other thing to that too, is that they're worried about if a water breaks spontaneously, they're worried about infection. So then they go ahead and break your water. Yeah. <laughs> and so exactly. they, they, they trying to see where you were going with that. They, well, they start an artificial clock on you then because they broke your bag of waters. Right. All right. I can tell you that, that, where I think this comes from, it comes from um, back when you, when I was a resident and stuff, it was about expediency. Yeah. It was about the Friedman curve. It was about moving things along. And I don't know that there is, you know, when you, when you say that, this is how I think about a lot of things now, Bliss, is because, you know, even thinking of Jen's little article about being willing to have your mind changed, is that yeah. when you say, you know, I don't know that there's any evidence to support doing that, there isn't. I mean, yes, does it speed things up? It may, but, uh, but at the risk, again, this is the scale thing, at the risk of them causing what sort of problems and then putting people on what sort of pressure to, to perform and do something in that period of time because now you broke your bag of waters simply because you, for the most of the part, you got impatient. I mean, there are obviously times where you're trying to speed up the delivery of, the, of, of a woman and, and does rupturing membranes speed it up? I don't know that there's been an objective uh, looking at that. There probably has. And I think that probably there is some evidence out there that says that a ROMing does speed up uh, and, you know, active labor because um, it had to start someplace, but I'm not sure that that's that, that there's benefits to that, that outweigh the risks of doing that in most times. Clearly, if you had somebody who had an eclamptic seizure, okay. And now you want to induce their labor because you want to get them, stabilized and get them uh, back on their 24 hours of mag and get them, you know, get them stabilized. You know, a lot of people will do a C-section for, uh, after somebody has an eclamptic seizure, it's probably the worst thing that you can do. Ideally, you want to get them delivered vaginally so you don't have to deal with uh, them having problems with the surgery as well. Um, and you induce them. And so as you're, if you're pitting them, when they reach three, four, five centimeters, A-ROMing them is something you do because it seems like that's what we've been taught will speed things up. Again, I don't know that there's a whole lot of evidence to, to support that. But for the most part, as you said, you're seeing it happen all the time, probably because it's handed down from one generation to the next of the, that this is what we do. And it's one of those things, again, that's the long habit of not thinking something wrong that gives it the superficial appearance of being right and not trusting that no other mammal would ever have its membranes ruptured artificially. Yeah. And I think of that thing that you share sometimes about when you first started learning more about out of community-based birth was, you know, you started to reflect that when you arrived at the hospital, everybody expected you to do something. Yeah. So it's something you can do. It's something as an obstetrician, you walk in, you're like, well, can't, can't pull the baby out because baby's not ready, you know, but I could break your water, you know, it's something that you can do. 
Um, and I just, I want, um, those of you listening that are expecting babies or planning pregnancies, you know, say no, because there there's value in, in that staying intact and not causing more problems. So, um, unless there's a clear indication of why we need to rush things, I would, I would say rushing things is not always better. Faster is not always better. And there is a design to it. Yeah. And I, and, and, and the rare cases where, you know, somebody say somebody has been five or six centimeters for 12 hours. All right. I mean, that's not necessarily rushing things. And so th they can give you that as an option to try to make things progress because the alternative is at some point they're going to tell you, you you've arrested or you had failure to progress. So you're going to try a roaming first before you, uh, before you surrender to the cesarean. But to try to do it as a method of induction, I think is a big mistake. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Anything else about amniotic fluid? We did a pretty good job, I think. Well, let's see. It has a sweet smell. <laughs> and if it doesn't and smell- it should be clear. Yeah. yeah. And it, if it doesn't smell that sweet, that, that, that could be a sign that there's an infection in there. You're right. It should be clear. Not, we talked about meconium a couple of weeks ago, so we don't need to talk about meconium. But yeah. So it's a fluid of life. Got, you know, you live in it for nine months. There's got to be some benefit to it. Yeah. And, you know, you just made me think about like, um, I, I've mentioned Lindsay like three times on this podcast. It's so funny. But she just posted something the other day about like babe, this baby being born into the sack as the, you know, the sack started protruding first and then the baby came into the sack. And I've seen that before. And what it reminds me of when you see that the sack coming through, it really does look like the woman is birthing the universe. I know that sounds like bizarre, but it's so true. It's so true. It's this like, it's this miraculous, beautiful thing that um, we don't get to see very often. So I just kind of wanted to add that in there. That's it. Yeah, that, I think that's it. I mean, again, I have so much more stuff, but we'll save it for next week. Um, <laughs> always more stuff you guys really really good to see you today i am going to be you packing too. up my stuff now and heading from lubbock uh, toward austin and okay. i'll be listening to my book and other things and just enjoying life and keeping my toes in the grass as uh, like to say. i wish i could be traveling on the road with you today um good to see you and i'll definitely catch up with you next week so everybody thanks for listening and if it is the middle of the night have a good one and we'll uh, we'll see you um, next week. And again, share us, tell people about us because we are making a difference. I have to tell you, my inbox is getting fuller and fuller and fuller every week. So uh, pretty soon I'm going to need to hire somebody <laughs> to help me with that. Uh, you look great, Bliss. Not dorky, not, not in the least. <laughs> okay, love you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 